Well, if you have a Bible, then please follow with me as we consider together these verses in 1 Samuel 16. I'm sure when you read the Bible, you must regularly say to yourself how uncomfortable it is to read God's Word. It's a very unsettling thing to read the Bible. There's much to encourage us, even thrill us. There's much to reassure us, to help us. But there's much in the Bible that's deeply unsettling. And one of the unsettling features of the Bible is the way it so honestly depicts the heroes of the faith. There's never an attempt to airbrush the sins and the failures of God's people. Sometimes you read the scriptures and you say, Lord, did I really need to know the awfulness? I'm thinking of passages like Genesis 38, um, 1 Samuel 11. Did I really need to know the gory details of the sins of your people? And of course the answer is yes. We need to know that even the best and the most privileged of God's people can sink to deep depths. Never think there is any sin beyond you. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's why every day we should be praying, Lord, guard my steps. Guard my steps. I think if someone had said to King David five minutes before he sees Bathsheba, seduces her. I think if someone had said to King David in five minutes you're going to be an adulterer and soon you're going to plot the murder of the woman you seduced. He would have had your head. How dare you think I would sink to such depths. Even when the Lord Jesus Christ said to Peter. Before this night is over, you'll deny me three times. Deny you? Me? Peter? They might all do it. If I've got to die for you, I would rather die than deny you. Three times he denied the Lord. Here we're introduced to Samuel, one of God's eminent servants. And I want to notice, first of all, with you, really there are two main points to the sermon, and the second point has three subpoints and four applications. Very Puritan. I want you to notice, first of all, Samuel's surprising failure. Samuel was God's man. God had set him apart. You'll remember how the book of Samuel begins. Um, Hannah pleads with the Lord uh, for a child and the Lord hears her cries and she devotes Samuel to the Lord and to his service. And so from from his earliest days, Samuel has been um, watched over, prepared for ministry in the kingdom of God and in the church of God. And God uses him greatly. Earlier on in chapter 13 and in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Samuel confronts King Saul. Now that was a big thing to do. 
Saul was an autocrat, but Samuel confronts him and says, you are a wicked man. You've disobeyed God, and God is tearing the kingdom from you, and neither you nor any of your descendants will rule over God's people. He was courageous, he was bold. But when Jesse begins to bring his seven sons before Samuel and brings the first one, Eliab, Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, why did Samuel think that? Had he not learned from the example of Saul? We're told back in chapter 10 that Saul was was head and shoulders physically above everyone else. He was tall. He was everything a king should be in people's minds. He had the presence of a king. He was diffident, but my, what stature he had. He turned out to be a disaster. And here is godly Samuel. Being taken in by what his eyes could see. That's why the Lord, and we'll come to this in a moment, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance on the height of his stature, for I've rejected him. Samuel sees this Eliab and thinks, wow, here's a king in waiting. He's just the man that God can use to replace Saul. But Samuel is doing here what God's people have always done throughout history. Again and again and again. And the Bible punctuates its narrative with this. This sin of thinking that what you see is what should be. It goes right back to the beginning. You remember how in Genesis, God says to um, Adam and to Eve, I'm giving you the whole creation. It's yours to explore, to tend. You see that one tree? Just that one tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Now, the tree was just a tree. It wasn't a special tree, just a tree. But God was giving them a test. He was saying, I'm giving you the whole cosmos, as it were. But here's a test. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you believe me no matter what? And then we read in chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He, Satan behind the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. You can eat of any tree you want, but that one tree, that's a test. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God is over-dramatizing things. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's the thing. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be made wise, she took of its fruit. And the rest is history. She was beguiled by what she saw. Now, God had said, no. Not because he was narrow-hearted. Not because he was a meanie. God was giving them a test. The whole of creation is yours. But I want to test you. Do you trust me to know what's best for you? Eve saw with her eyes... My, that fruit looks good. Well, not called the kind of fruit, actually. That fruit looks good. Just looks, just waiting to be plucked and to be eaten. And her eyes deafened her to the word of God. God said, no. Her eyes said, yes. And she chose to believe what her eyes saw rather than believe God's word. And as I said, the rest is history. And you see the same thing in the New Testament in the church in Corinth. What was the problem in the church in Corinth? It was in a mess for lots of reasons. But at the heart of the mess was this. They had become beguiled by charismatic preachers with a small c. Men of eloquence, men of stature, men who had a way with words, men who were rhetoricians. They stood up and people listened to them. What they were saying was secondary, but my, well, with what fluency he can speak, with what eloquence he can speak, with what passion he can speak. And they became beguiled by what their eyes saw and their ears heard. They didn't see past into the heart. And this is Samuel's sin here. Even Samuel was beguiled by what he saw. That's why it's so vital that day by day by day we, we feed our minds and hearts on God's word. That we take God's word to heart. That we trust what he says, no matter what our senses may say. We trust that he is good, even when his providences are hard. We trust that he loves us, even when he seems far from us. We, we trust his word, Lord, you have said you've loved me with an everlasting love. You've said you will never fail me nor forsake me. Help me to trust you and not to believe what my eyes perceive. And if Samuel, great Samuel, could succumb to a sin like that, then don't think that you or me or anyone is beyond that. So that's Samuel's surprising failure. But secondly, and more particularly, notice the Lord's humbling rebuke to Samuel. For it is a rebuke, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance 
or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God looks this very moment into every one of our hearts. He knows your every thought. He knows why you're here. He knows everything that's going on beneath the surface of your life. God looks on the heart. Now look down to verse 12. Because when they send for David, we're told he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. But he wasn't chosen because of that. Not even in spite of that. It didn't matter at all. It doesn't matter if you're beautiful or not, or brilliant or not, or wealthy or not. It doesn't matter if you have this gift or not, or that gift or not. What matters is the heart. Everything else is in one sense irrelevant. Now don't think I'm demeaning gifts. Far from it. We'll come to that in a moment. The important thing is, and we're told back in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, why the Lord was pleased to choose David. Because in David, he says, I have found a man after my own heart. David was the youngest of the eight boys. And if you were the youngest, you were given the most menial of jobs. He had to care for the sheep. Everyone else was with Samuel waiting for this occasion, this sacrifice to the Lord. What's Samuel doing? Well, he's out in the boondocks. But he was the man after God's own heart. Let me make three initial applications about this. Number one, what matters to God is not that you have a dramatic story of conversion, but that your life shows that you truly are the Lord's. What matters is not that you have a great story to tell. In a sense, that's really irrelevant because we all have the same testimony if we're Christians, saved by grace. That's the only testimony people in heaven have, saved by grace whether from degradation or from religion or from whatever, saved by the grace of God. That's the only testimony. What matters is not how you came to Christ, but that you've come to Christ and that your life shows that you've come to Christ. And what is it that shows that you've come to Christ? We were thinking this morning that you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That you seek to live, to honor him, to please him, to live your life shaped and styled by his righteousness. That is by right living and right living is God pleasing living. That's why one of the first things a young Christian discovers 
is that they have a new taste for God's commandments. Oh, how I love your law. The law is literally, Torah means instruction. God's wise, fatherly instruction. And you discover, I've I've got a new taste. I've got a new taste for worship. I've got a new taste for the Bible. I've got a new taste for telling the truth. I've a new taste that shuts off bad things in my computer. What matters is what's going on beneath the surface. God looks in the heart. And then secondly, the presence of spiritual gifts is not remotely as important as the practice of spiritual graces. You'll know these words well, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I delivered up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What is Paul saying to these Corinthians? He's saying God looks in the heart. Stop being so taken up with the giftedness of mere men. Cultivate the spiritual graces that adorn the life of faith. And he is supremely, of course, the grace of love. Love to the Lord and love to his people, love to our neighbors. And the third thing I simply mention is this, that pulpit eloquence and pulpit presence is no substitute for holiness and likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. My life as a Christian has been powerfully impacted, I believe for good, by men who had a remarkable pulpit presence who preached with eloquence I could only dream about. And God uses men like that, whether it's a Martin Lloyd-Jones or an Eric Alexander or a Donald McLeod or whatever. Of course, eloquence and, and presence matter, but they only matter if they're accompanied with heart holiness. And likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me try and make it a little more pertinent for all of you here in Greyfriars Free Church of Scotland. You're looking for, and soon will be looking for, a pastor to replace our dear friend Malcolm. Let me ask you, what are you looking for? What are your priorities when you meet together? Is it this coming Wednesday and you'll have other meetings? What are your priorities? You say, well, Ian... um, We want a man who will faithfully preach the word of God. Absolutely. I trust you do. That's where you begin. We want a man who will faithfully pastor the flock of Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want a man committed to the reformed faith. Absolutely. That's no easy thing today. Someone who has a heart and soul, commitment to our confessional standards, believing them to be biblical. Of course. But God looks in the heart. 
God looks on the heart. Now, what will that mean for you as you think about what about this man or, or that man or him down here or him over there? It will mean that you'll keep in mind that man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks in the heart. You say, well, spell it out for me, Ian, spell it out. Let me mention four things, just very briefly. You'll first of all be concerned to discover this. Do you love the Saviour, Jesus Christ? Remember, Peter denies the Lord three times. When the Lord restores Peter, remember in John 21, remember the words that Jesus uses to restore Peter. Peter's faith has collapsed. A little servant girl says, you, you're one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? Not me, not me, certainly not me. Oh, you are, your, your speech betrays you. And with curses, he denies the Lord of glory. What does Jesus do when he restores him? Does he say to Peter, now Peter, here's the thing. Do you promise from now on to be bold and courageous? To be resolute, to be unyielding? No, he doesn't. He goes to the heart of the matter and he says, Peter, do you love me? You almost imagine, you know, in your mind's eye, Peter's head down saying yes Lord you you know that I love you and a second time a second time Jesus says Peter do you love me and Peter yes Lord you you know that I love you and then the third time to match up his threefold denial Jesus says to him, okay, Peter, do you love me? And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, you know all things. You see past my words. You see past my profession. You see my heart. You know all things. You know that I love you. Love to the Savior is the animating pulse beat of authentic pastoral ministry. I sometimes feel at licensing and ordination exams, we, we don't ask the real questions. 30 years, well, the Church of Scotland don't ask any questions. Well, they asked me my name. <laughs> that, that was about it. But 30 years ago in the USA, we were there for a sabbatical and a very fine uh, reformed church uh, in the Mississippi Valley had asked me to come and I was doing some study as well. And they said, well, the presbytery said, you know, you're in the Church of Scotland. I am. <laughs> they said, well, although Sinclair Ferguson and Douglas Kelly have vouched for you, would you mind sitting all our exams and the floor exam and the committee exam? Oh, I said, no, no, I like exams. And the exams weren't difficult. They were, well, they were okay. Um, I enjoy exams. And then they came to the committee exam where they ask you questions. That's where you really find out where people are at. I was asked crazy questions. Are you a five-point Calvinist? What a stupid question to ask anyone. For lots of reasons. 
I actually am, but that's not a question you ask anyone. Do you believe in limited atonement? Even worse, ahistorical. And I'm thinking, you know, a trained parrot, a well-trained parrot, could answer those questions. They, they, they wanted to tick boxes. No one asked me, Ian, tell us about your love for the Saviour or the lack of your love for the Saviour. No one asked me about, tell us how you read God's word in the mornings, what time you spend in prayer. Tell us about your relationship with your wife. You should always speak to a wife before you call a pastor. If you don't, you need your head examined. I'm thinking, of course, I'm a confessional reformed Christian. I, I believe in confessional Christianity. I, I want people to ask me these questions. Do you know what effectual calling is? How would you explicate he predestined us in love? I, I want to be asked those questions, but God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. Secondly, it means love to the people for whom he shed his precious blood. That's a hard thing. It doesn't mean you gush over them. What does love mean? It mean love means to seek their highest and their best no matter what. When I was a pastor in two churches in New Mills and Cambridge, most of my visits I, I loved doing. Some of them I just put off and put off and put off and put off. I just, oh dear, dear. And eventually one day you summon up the energy, the courage, and you know it's not going to be easy. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not die for sinners because they were lovable, but because they were sinners. He shed his precious blood for sinners. Pastors don't have the luxury of avoiding any in the flock of Christ. I can imagine my good friend David here looking after his sheep. Maybe some, I, I know nothing about sheep. I'm just imagining that most of the sheep are relatively docile or docile, as Americans say. But there are some that are difficult, weak, and citron. They don't come when you call them, when the dog comes. But you don't just give up on them or neglect them. Well, you could, but you would be a shameful shepherd if you did. And then thirdly, God looking in the heart means you're looking for a man who loves his wife and children if he has them. You want to know, what's his relationship Looking with your eyes. I often tell my students when you're doing pastoral visitation, much of the time you'll be watching with your eyes, listening with your ears. Talking will be a third, minor component. How does he look at his wife? How does she look at him? How, how do they treat their children? How, what language does he use in the family life? And the fourth thing, just very briefly. He will be a man with a heart commitment to prayer. The apostle said, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. A commitment 
to personal prayer, family prayer, congregational prayer. One of the great sadnesses in recent years, not just in Scotland, almost everywhere I go, is the demise of the congregational prayer meeting. And yet one of the marks of the early church, they were devoted, notice the verb, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, plural. They were devoted to it. Whenever the church gathered, they were there. They were there. As a very young Christian, I was given what I didn't realize was probably the best advice I was ever given as a young Christian. Ian, there should be three non-negotiables in your week. Morning worship, evening worship, and the church gathered for prayer. I just thought that's what Christians did. <laughs> just thought that's what Christians did. My friends, God looks on the heart. What is he seeing in your heart and my heart this evening? God isn't impressed by my knowledge or lack of it. He's saying, my son, give me your heart. Give me your heart. Give me your heart. So, may the Lord give you a man after his own heart. May he give you a man who will lead you humbly, wisely, well, faithfully, courageously, and lovingly to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Amen.